I mean, just the size of the ticks that guys were getting into, like the size elements that were challenging the Marines was surprising. Like you're talking about a squad, even like a platoon, like 40 plus Taliban fighters, like actually attacking a patrol base and going, oh crap, these boys are down for a scrap. All right, this is going to be real. What's up, guys? It's the host of O2X Tactical Performance, Joe McCullough. Hey, as you're listening to the episode, head into whatever platform you're on, whether it be Spotify, Apple, Google, whatever it may be, leave us a rating, and more importantly, leave us a review and let us know what community you're listening from, whether that be the fire service, law enforcement, military, general athletics, let us know. And also, let us know who you're interested in hearing on the podcast. This is the only way that we can incorporate guests that are going to pique the interest of our listeners. So drop a name, drop a rating, drop a review. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. On to the episode. Today's guest graduated from Purdue University as a member of the NROTC program and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. Stationed in Camp Pendleton, California as an infantry platoon commander, he was in charge of training, leading, mentoring, and preparing about 40 Marines for what was going to be a very difficult deployment in Afghanistan. On October 17, 2010, he was leading a platoon in a dismounted patrol of a narrow valley in northern Helmand Province, Afghanistan, which was known as one of the deadliest provinces in Afghanistan at the time. During this patrol, he subsequently suffered the loss of both of his legs after being hit with an improvised explosive device. He remained conscious and was anesthetized in the medevac chopper and was medically evacuated to Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. The superior training that his men received enabled them to stabilize him and save his life. As a result of the events that day, he suffered the loss of both legs above the knee as well as the loss of both pinky fingers. He has since gone on to find success in the civilian world, where he currently works in investment banking as a central risk book principal trader, and next month will be attending an O2X workshop sponsored by Building Homes for Heroes. Please welcome to the podcast, James Byler. Seems like you sign off all your emails as Jimmy, though. So do you go by Jimmy? Jimmy's good, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for doing this. How are you? Yeah, full name is Jimmy Wills, but we can just go with Jimmy for now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I might fire that off yeah. once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm good, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to this. So just a little bit on how we got connected. So as I mentioned in the bio, we're putting on an event actually at West Point coming up here at the end of March. We've been partnered with Building Homes for Heroes for pretty close to a year now, and we put on a handful of events with them. One specifically for veterans in Tampa, Florida, and then a handful in California, one in Maryland. And then now we have one upcoming in New York at West Point, which will include members from FDNY, as well as a select group of veterans. So in coordinating some stuff with them, I was sent bios of the veterans that would be attending. And there was a list of like, I don't know, 10 or 12. Immediately, yours jumped off the page. I love Marines. I love the history of the Marine Corps. Specifically, I just read With the Old Breed and uh, Helmet for My oh, Pillow. Yeah, I read both of them, which have you ever seen the show The Pacific? Oh, yeah. 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 So both those books are what The Pacific is based off of. So very rich history of the Marine Corps. You're an infantry guy, which is awesome. Actually, out of curiosity, have you ever heard the name Matias Pereira? Yeah, I know him well. He's uh, he's a cop right now in Long Island. Yeah. 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 So Matias was like, I think he was the third ever guest that I had on the podcast. I know you guys have similar injuries, both Marine Corps dudes. I think he was enlisted though, right? Yeah, he was. He was also an amputee, both legs below the knee, I believe. But even with that, 
I don't know how he's operating as a cop. Good on him. <laughs> I'm not doing he, anything like that. <laughs> insane. Well, insane. It's it's he's not just a cop. Like he's a patrolman. He's not far yeah. off from, from the super troopers answering phones. Like he's a patrolman, <laughs> which is you know crazy. Yeah. Either way, good dude. So we've had him as well as Dan Kanawson, who's a SEAL double amputee on the podcast, and then yep. obviously your story is is insane as well. So. I like to move chronologically, if you don't mind. I know you went to Purdue. Yeah. Purdue's a great school. So let's get the works on your early life. Like why the military? Why NROTC? Why the Marine Corps? All that. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. So, you know, in terms of like wanting to do the military, it's funny because I saw that from my old yearbooks, like all the way back to apparently when I was in kindergarten, we did a yearbook. And in my kindergarten yearbook, we all said what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said, soldier. At the age of five, I have no idea why. I don't know if it was GI Joes or maybe, you know, the Persian Gulf War was going on at the time. But for whatever reason, for as long as I can remember, I just always wanted to do the military. And I cannot point to you a single moment or a single inspiration just for as long as I have a memory that's functioning. That's just something that I wanted. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And had that all my youth growing up. So I grew up in Long Island. And yeah, in my opinion, although some people may debate it, in my opinion, just kind of a normal kid from Long Island that wanted to join the military. And I originally wanted to go out of straight out of high school. I just wanted to enlist. That's all I really wanted out of life at that point in time was I, I just wanted to be a Marine specifically. My older brother, he'd already gone to do a ROTC for the Army at Purdue. So why did he do Army and I want to do Marines? That's a pretty good question. I can actually point to the fact that, A, well, he's my older brother and he was going to do the Army and I wanted to one-up him. So there's a little bit of sibling rivalry that played into my decision there. And the other one was just I really liked the movie Full Metal Jacket and I really liked every Marine that I met. Like when the recruiters would come around the school, get guys from the Air Force, from the Marines, from the Army. I just thought the Marines seemed like the coolest dudes, just the way that they were. And again, maybe that was just the selection of people I interacted with. But, you know, it's not really something tangible. It was just kind of the overall package of the people that I met. I just liked the Marines and I felt like I fit in with sort of their persona. So from there, had some conversations with my mom and other family members about like, okay, listen, you can do the whole Marines thing, but you're going to college first. I don't care. And okay, fine. I'll go to college for four years. I'd gotten into Purdue, and a couple of things I was looking at for schools is like, well, one, outside of wanting to do the military, I had no idea like what kind of major I wanted to do. So I wanted to make sure it was a school that had like a lot of different majors. Should I figure out like, you know, should the military not work out? And I had to do something else. It had a lot of good programs to it. Also, it had a good ROTC program, which is something I was looking for. It also wasn't, you know, within striking range of home. And my mom couldn't just pop in in 20 minutes and, you know, see what my room looked like. <laughs> Kick down the dorm room uh, door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ha half kidding there. Half kidding. So did ROTC at Purdue, graduated from that program. This was in 2008, went off to do training at the Marine Corps in Quantico. And that was another year. <laughs> roughly of training just through what we call TBS, which is the acronym for the basic school, because you can't just have it be BS. It has to be the basic school. So you do six months of that, which is kind of like, you know, basic training for officers where you're learning to 
be in the same way that every Marine is a rifleman. Well, every Marine officer is a basic rifle platoon commander. That's sort of the expectation. So everyone does that at a basic level. Then you go on to do IOC, which is about another, I want to say, three months or so of training, just infantry-specific training. And then off you go into the fleet. So I ended up getting stationed in Southern California, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. This was 2009. I arrived at the unit. We did a year of uh, workup for what we initially thought was going to be a MU, then turned into an Afghan deployment. So here I am basically getting exactly what I want out of life. You know, I wanted to be a Marine. I specifically wanted to be an infantry Marine. I wanted to go off to combat, to war, to be a fighter and fight in the war. And that's kind of everything I wanted out of life. So here I was getting to go and do that. And I am kind of excited and grateful, if you want to use that word, which is kind of funny now to think about it that way. But that very much was how I felt and still how I feel. I still feel that it was a privilege to serve in the Marine Corps at all, much less be a commander of Marines in the infantry. So you talk me through that decision process. Like first off, let's, for those that are unaware, kind of just set the scene for how infantry Marines kind of view other MOSs and especially in the Marine Corps, like how in high regard the infantry is held. And then can you also go into a little bit of IOC. I have a bunch of buddies that have completed IOC and it's supposed to be pretty gnarly. It's supposed to be a really difficult yeah. course. So why yeah. infantry and what was that like? The full answer goes into a little bit of, I guess you could call like military theory, which I won't get too much into, but it's not just us like beating our chest and saying like, oh, we're the best. The world revolves around us. Like, no, actually everything in the military does revolve or around the Marine Corps does revolve around the infantry. Everything is designed in some way, shape or form to support the infantry and there's a lot of these very interesting paradoxes with the infantry in the sense that like one it's kind of like it's the most competitive but also like the most miserable if that makes sense like it's where you're on the front lines you're carrying stuff you're digging trenches you're doing hard manual arduous under very austere conditions it's sort of like the most physically miserable of the branches yet it's like Kind of the most competitive to get into, at least by many measures. A lot of pilots will tell you otherwise, but at least the competitive part. So why do you want to do it? What? Why do you want to lose sleep and carry heavy loads, very long distances and, you know, be cold, be wet, be miserable, be exposed to danger with the least, <laughs> like, why would any rational human being want to do that? Well, it's because you're in sort of the inner sanctum of what it is to be a warrior. You are doing the job that it is the most purely what you could call warrior. So there is this aspect of it that does sort of call to you in a very primal sort of sense. It's something that is either sort of in you or it isn't. And I know this sounds cheesy, but it's it's the goddamn truth. Like I wanted to be a warrior and that is like the one job in America today where you are doing that thing that is very, very primal. And so, yeah, you're obviously not doing it for the pay. You're not doing it for comfort. You're going to work hard. Forget getting any type of like return on investment and doing it. It's just something that the best way it was put to me is when someone was asking me before I went off to training, like, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do infantry. And this person's like, all right, well, 
why do you want to do infantry? Because there's a lot of people that do get into it and realize, oh, crap, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. I hate this. I don't want to do it. I'm cold, hungry, and tired all the time. It's hard to keep up. And, you know, a lot of people end up not wanting to do it. And so the question that was posed to me is like, if you could never tell anyone that you do that job, you know, you're not getting paid for it. You don't get to brag about it. You don't get to tell anyone about it. Do you still want to do that job? That was a question I had sort of swirling around in my head going through training. Like, okay, there's no vanity here. There's no pay here. If hypothetically you couldn't tell anyone to brag about it, like, is this something that you want to do for the sake of doing it? You know, it's kind of like when you're skiing, you're not thinking about skiing because you're skiing. You don't care about telling people about it. You don't care about anything else you're going to get out of it. The reward is doing the thing. And I found when I was going through TBS and doing training that I liked doing the thing. Like it was a very confirmation of like, yes, I want to be a warfighter, a warrior, whatever word you want to call it. But this craft, this thing, this is something I want to do at least for a period of time in my life. Absolutely. How so, old were you when you took over your first platoon? Oh God, I think I was 24. So like you're 24, you take over your first platoon. What are some of the personalities you have in there? I'm assuming it's a oh, lot man. of just testosterone out 19 year olds, just ready to go to war. Oh, yeah. Like what, was it, what were some of the personalities? And did you find that you had a lot of similarities with the people that were in your platoon? Yeah. So personalities. Oh man. So with that, you do come across one of the blessings of this job. You know, if you're meant to be doing it is that, so back it up a little bit. I had been forewarned by someone who I, in retrospect, think should not have ever done this job, but you're going to be disappointed in the quality of your Marines. You're going to be disappointed because of how belligerent they are, how hard they are to control and everything. And I had almost been prepped a little bit to like temper my expectations because, again, you can kind of tell from the way I'm describing it going into this thing, I had some sort of romanticism to it. But I also had a lot of, I guess you could call, not forgiveness in the traditional sense of like someone does you wrong and you forgive them for that, but forgiveness in terms of loving people in lieu of sort of shortcomings. And I even hate describing it that way. I mean... In the Marine Corps, in the infantry especially, you find a lot of guys that are gritty and rough around the edges. You know, guys who came from tough backgrounds, tough neighborhoods, tough upbringings, and absolutely had a lot of belligerence in their nature. And they absolutely demanded a very strong leadership figure if they were going to listen to you. So getting to my platoon... I'd had these warnings and I'd also had my preconceived notions of whatever you want to call it. But let me tell you, man, I was so happy to meet that platoon. I was so happy to get the group of guys that I got. Was there belligerence? Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I'm a jackass kid from Long Island. <laughs> like, I have nothing to complain about. I am nothing but a sort of affinity in my soul for that. So, Every bit of that, the sort of, I guess you could call youthful male aggression <laughs> and belligerence towards authority, I have nothing but affinity for that. So a lot of it, even though it was directed towards me, I could only recognize it and love it. So 
you know, you it, know. It, it's funny because in your bio, I don't know if it was written by you or written about you, but you talk about just the level of training that your Marines had had, and it ultimately ended up saving your life. So I was yes. just, the reason my, I was asking is kind of just the relationship between officer and enlisted Marines, just because we haven't had an officer that was in the big Marine Corps yeah. come on and talk about that relationship. So it is, it is funny that you kind of have an affinity for those who, as you said, have an affinity for belligerence. Yeah. Listen, I mean, for me, it was the only recognition. Like, I, I think there are some guys out there that take it like very personally, like towards themselves, but it's like, listen, man, you got to understand what you're dealing with here. Yeah, look around the room. Personal, man. Just, yeah. it, it's the nature of the beast. It is what it is. Like you're whitewater rafted, not parallel parking a car. Just, yeah. you know, avoid the rocks. Don't crash. That's what you're doing. You know, right. you're, you're steering, you're steering this thing through rapids, you know, that's so, sort of platoon command. You're not parallel parking a car. You can't view it that way. You get injured in late 2010. I know you said you graduated in 08 and you still mm -hmm. need to go to TBS. You still need to finish IOC. And yep. then you joined the platoon in Camp Pendleton. So how long was your workup or how long did you have a workup for personally? From getting to my platoon, it was close to a year, which is a lot. I know some guys got to platoons and they only had like a few months. But we did both Bridgeport and 29 Palms packages. So we did Bridgeport in like, I want to say January, which was miserable. And then we did 29 Palms in July, which was miserable. Oh, excuse me. So yeah, there was a lot of work up. And yeah, no, I mean, it, it was plenty of time. How far in advance did you guys know that you were going to, number one, Afghanistan, but more specifically, Northern Province of Afghanistan? And what was your understanding of that area heading into the deployment? So we knew we were going to Afghanistan, I want to say by the time we went to Bridgeport in January. So Advan, I want to say, left in early September. We found out, I want to say in January, that we knew we were going to Afghanistan. Like we got more and more information as we got closer and closer to deployment. I want to say it wasn't until the summer that we knew where we were going, but we didn't really understand like how hairy the area of operations was until maybe like a month out and we started reading like reports from the british royal marines that were there the paras and then i want to say it was three seven went there first before us at the tail end of their deployment so they were there for about a month before we got there and then we ripped with them or it was them and 40th commando that we ripped with so as we got closer and closer there was kind of a little bit more of this oh crap like this is serious like yes. it was a very very kinetic environment that we were going into and it's like wow okay read a report about i mean just the size of the ticks that guys were getting into like the size elements that were challenging the marines was surprising like you're talking about a squad even like a platoon like 40 plus taliban fighters like actually attacking a patrol base and going oh crap these boys are down for a scrap all right this is going to be real so with that, there's emotions that you're starting to process. Now, of course, having never actually served in combat before, as the majority of the battalion had not, unless, you know, with, with the exception of your more senior NCOs, a few more senior officers, the vast majority of the guys had not actually deployed to combat before. So, yeah, there's excitement. There's crap talking like, oh, this is going to be awesome. But deep down, I mean... The thing that kind of even bothered me back then was the IED threat, because that was sort of the thing that even previously in Iraq had been the great equalizer. The way that IEDs had evolved over time, the way they were being used and how effective they were, 
was pretty terrifying because we didn't really have a good way of like countering it, but we knew we were going to push out aggressively. So as we then deployed and went through the various stages of movement to our patrol bases, you know, to Manas, Kyrgyzstan, to Camp Bastion, Camp Leatherneck, which is within Bastion, and then dispersing out to our various patrol bases, we got like more information, more specific orders for what we were going to be doing once we hit the ground. And it was pretty clear that, well, one, we were downsizing from two battalions. There was a British unit and then a U.S. Marine unit that was there. Both were pulling out and we were just pulling 35 in. So it's like, okay. We're going to downsize, and then we're going to push out aggressively. That was kind of the general idea of what we're doing. It's like, yeah, this is going to be tough. Because <laughs> even well, with th- those sizes of units, like, you know, guys were taking casualties. There was a lot of kinetic activity. And so kind of like, all right, well, here we go. At what point did you guys touch down in Afghanistan? Like, do you remember the day that you got there? I actually don't remember the specific date. <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, so you got you got injured in October. Like how long prior to getting injured were you there? Uh, a few weeks. It's pretty short. It was at the beginning of the deployment. I mean, that's when you take most of your casualties, the very beginning and the very end. The very beginning because, hey, you're aggressive. You want to push out and go get the enemy. And, you, you know, understandably, you want to go get the bad guys and whip it on. So you take a lot of casualties in the beginning and then you take casualties at the end because – you know, the lights at the end of the tunnel, you know, you start getting a little complacent. You know, that's kind of the other point in time. It's, it's a little bit of a horseshoe in terms of how that generally kind of works. Can you provide a little context on what quote unquote aggressive means? Like, what does that look like? You guys are looking to push into territory that hasn't been navigated yet. I know you mentioned that there was a lot of large size yeah. units of Taliban fighters. So like, you get settled at this outpost at what point do you quote unquote start becoming aggressive and what is exactly does that look like like are you actively trying Um, to get firefights with these individuals so me specifically i was doing patrols with i was attached to local ana which are the afghan nationals my platoon initially had been split up into uh squads so aggressive means like okay we were planning a number of clearing ops like on the company level but also when we initially got to the patrol bases, you're going on security patrols constantly. And you're not just, you know, going a hundred meters outside the wire, you're properly patrolling the entire area, areas which either had not been sort of stepped in in a while or very rarely or scantily had been patrolled. So the idea was we wanted to get a lot of patrols out and we wanted to do proper patrols, not to criticize you know, the British too much, there's a lot more higher up politics, if you will, that goes into how they were operating towards the end of their deployment, where, you know, they kind of, from what we understood, would go out for 100 meters and go in a circle outside the patrol base, come back in, and that was kind of it, you know, call the day. The Taliban were able to build these sort of IED belts around patrol bases and sort of wall them in, which is what you had around a lot of these patrol bases. So the idea from a larger operational or strategic level was that we were going to break down a lot of patrol bases into a small number, which would free up more forces to go out on security patrols to sort of dominate the area, control the area a lot more, 
Now, one of the reasons why we took so many casualties early on is because we started hitting those IED belts that had been in place for, like, over the course of the years, a lot of these had been built up. So the Taliban had a lot of time to build up IED belts, sort of plan a lot of the battle space around them. And so as we started patrolling and getting into contact with the Taliban, we also started, you know, crossing some of these IED belts, hitting IEDs, taking ambushes, taking fire, sort of triggering a lot of these, I guess you could say ambushes, or a lot of the ground that the Taliban had planned and started, you know, acting upon. Were you the first casualty or had any Marines been injured prior to you? I know you said you'd only been there a few weeks, but... I mean, in the company, no. I mean, we'd taken a number of casualties already, certainly at the battalion level. I mean, that day in that particular incident, yeah, I was the first and only guy, at least for my platoon. I don't recall if other guys were injured that day, but for a while it was like every day. You know, you take like two guys here, three guys here, like cap platoon. I think lost four or five guys maybe just the day or two days before I got hit. And that was that was actually a terrifying one because it was an MATV that got blown up. I'm pretty sure everyone inside got killed, which you know those things are pretty up armored. It wasn't an MRAP, it was an MATV, but still. And this thing was all made from HME. You know, <laughs> it's like it was this giant explosion that shook the entire earth because it was designed for a vehicle and that they were were able to be that effective against an, an up-armored vehicle like an MATV was a little terrifying, I'll be honest. It's like, wow, okay, they are using these things to pretty great effect. So, yeah, every day it was like another report coming in, like, you know, this platoon just lost two guys to an IED, this platoon lost a guy. You know, it was like every day at that point. The O2X Tactical Performance Podcast is proud to be sponsored by FirstNet, built with AT&T. FirstNet is the only high-speed broadband communication platform built with and for public safety. In emergency response, communication isn't a luxury. Every single moment counts. That's why FirstNet, built with AT&T, is here. The FirstNet mission is to make communication faster, safer, and more collaborative for first responders and those who support them. FirstNet helps first responders connect when and where they need to with priority and preemption capabilities. This means they connect first because being first matters, especially in an emergency. As a part of the FirstNet commitment to responder health and wellness, FirstNet is sponsoring programs like us at O2X Human Performance to make a difference in the lives of those who serve. Get more info at FirstNet.com or at your local AT&T store. FirstNet and the FirstNet logo are registered trademarks of the First Responder Network Authority. All other marks are the property of their respective owners. O2X's podcast is brought to you by Building Homes for Heroes. Building Homes for Heroes is an absolutely incredible organization that O2X is lucky enough to partner with. Their main mission is to build or modify homes and then gift them mortgage-free to injured veterans and first responders. They also provide support services to enable these populations to build better and brighter lives and reach new heights. Through partnership with Building Homes for Heroes, a variety of military, veteran, and first responder populations will receive access to O2X's training and education and allow us to create positive impact on each respective organization. Be sure to visit buildinghomesforheroes.org, which can be found in the episode description, and donate to their incredible cause. Let's walk through the day that you ended up getting hurt. I know you said so. You said that you've been there a few weeks. You guys are pushing out further and further. And I know it said you were on a patrol. Can you kind of just give a layout of the area at the time that you guys are in, meaning like the actual setting itself, 
what's around like are you guys in the middle of the desert are you in an urban area like what does it look like when you're yeah. on this patrol and how many people are you with right so urban in the sense of southern afghanistan village the area of operations i was in if you can imagine there were two main areas that it was kind of split up between at least for my company and it was east and west of the 611 which is the route 611 is like the one road in the entire area. It wasn't even paved at the time. It was mostly just beaten dirt and rocks. Eventually they paved it, but it was the only road you could get vehicles on, unless it was something off-road. This was like the main route through the entire AO. Basically split our area of operations in half, went up to the district center and like main bazaar, downtown, whatever you want to call it. On the west side of the 611 was what we called the green zone, which is where there was a lot of farmland. It's next to the river where there's a lot of irrigation. So there's a lot of plants, a lot of greenery, a lot of farmland is on the west side. So hence we dubbed it the green zone. And then on the east side of the 611 is what we dubbed the brown zone because it was all arid desert. There's really no farmland. It's basically just a bunch of mud compounds. You know, that's pretty much it. So the interesting thing is the guys on the west side of the 611 were patrolling in green camis. The guys on the east side of the 611 were in desert camis. And so my platoon was on the east side in our... So yeah, it's kind of funny. You you have two different platoons in the same company patrolling with different sets of camis. Kind of interesting. Anyway, so I was kind of more assigned to the brown zone, which is most... The the area I'm in is mostly abandoned at at that point in time. There'd been so much fighting. There'd been a lot of IEDs placed over time. I think most of the villagers just kind of over time abandoned the area. Don't blame them. I mean, I won't want my kids running around in that environment. So if you can imagine, it's, um, you know, at most, you know, two-story compounds, just buildings made out of mud in very tightly condensed, packed neighborhoods, a lot of long, narrow alleyways, also just made out of like sort of mud and thatch and that sort of thing. But don't let that sort of mislead you. A lot of these mud walls are really thick and will stop a 50 cal round. So Tactically, they're actually quite effective. And you consider the cost of building them as, well, it's made out of mud. So on this fine day, we're patrolling through this area. And the size of this patrol was, was about 12 to 15 of my Marines. So I'd been patrolling with one of my squads, reinforced by engineers. And then we also patrolled alongside the Afghan National Army. And there are about another 10 to 15 guys. So... Call it about 30 guys total I'm patrolling with, trying to control, if you want to use that word. Yeah, cans kind of just do what they want to do and shoot at what they want to shoot at. They'll tell you afterwards what they're doing. That's kind of what you're trying to do. I had a, a translator, and in, there's this one Afghan first sergeant who was 24 or 22, 23 years old. He was younger than me at the time, and somehow he'd made first sergeant. So I don't know how that system works. Uh, <laughs> it was good. And this guy was fearless. So he was very good at finding IEDs. Like, it it was absolutely absurd. This guy would, he would seriously operate with nothing but a pocket knife. He didn't even have, like, a metal detector or anything. Like, I would have an engineer that would whip out one of those, like, old man metal detectors you'd see, like, like the metal detectors you see the old people with and on the beach looking for change. Like, they basically have one of those things looking for a metal signature. But the problem with these IEDs is that they're, they're purposely constructed to have as little metal signature as possible. It's made from HME, stored in plastic, and they'll use like really thin copper wiring 
to attach to the pressure plate. And the pressure plate's just wood, maybe carbon rods or something, and some bed foam that they wrap and tape. And, and that's it. You've barely got any metallic components anyway. So it's tough. There's really no technology that was perfect for, for attaching these things. So this guy somehow would just look at the ground, see some disturbance or something. I didn't see what he saw, but he would just go up to the ground, take out his pocket knife, dig in the ground, cut some wires, and pull out a pressure plate and go IV. And that what? was it. This dude, yeah, yeah, just like 10 feet in front of me. I'm just like, how were you? How did that? Did you put that there? Like, what the hell? So go into a compound or something that, you know, he would just walk off because he'd see something and he'd just start pulling IEDs out of the ground like that. This is how he yeah. put on first sergeant. He was just the best IED finder. That pocket knife yeah. is good luck. You're not getting the Marine first sergeant to do that. <laughs> this guy just did it by himself. So I guess they figured he should get paid the most. I don't know. Anyway, guy was a total badass. God bless him. He had already dug out several IEDs from this compound. So at this point in time, it's like, all right, I'm calling, starting to call up. I talked to our command COs or our company COs, sent up the reports, and now we're trying to coordinate EOD to come and dispose of the IEDs. So I'm working on that. And then I'm also trying to coordinate setting up a perimeter around the compound, set up security for EOD to show up and sort of take care of the EOD or IEDs. As this happens, I start hearing gunshots. And I look down the aisleway and I see a couple of Marines run down the alleyway. And it's like, ah, crap, here we go. So I naturally go bolting down the alleyway after them. Now, what had happened was uh, one of our Afghan soldiers had gotten into uh, contact with Talit, which I guess someone who had been observing the patrol and had gone in pursuit of him. And then following him, a couple of my Marines had gone after one of my engineers as well. We then further up the alleyway sort of stop and it's kind of like this tactical pause of like, what the F are we doing? Like, why are we running off on a wild goose chase? Like, you have any idea how bad this is? Like, the potential for this situation, we're already like, I don't know, maybe 100 meters up this alleyway. It's like, we need to get the F back. Like, what the hell are you doing? So as we're doing this, you know, I'm getting visibility on... There's kind of an elevated, I don't know what to call it, but a, a bluff, if you will, that's looking down on us. So I'm just trying to get visibility on it because there's guys moving around. They're like, all right, if we're about to take contact, probably from there. And as I'm doing this, trying to, you know, coordinate pulling back to our compound that we were setting up security in, I stepped off the beaten path and I stepped on the ID. So some of my fears were confirmed by doing that, but that was kind of the nature of the environment that we were in is just that there were IEDs everywhere, absolutely everywhere. So even though this alleyway like had some freshly packed dirt in it, like people were using this, it was no guarantee that you wouldn't step off the path a foot or two feet in one direction and not find an IED that maybe has been there for a few years. So that's when I stepped on it. And for me, I never went unconscious. I was conscious the entire time, which is not a blessing, let me tell you. But, and your rundown of the biography is absolutely correct, where from this point in time on, the credit is 100% due to the Marines that I was with. Because none of them were corpsmen. They were all riflemen and an engineer. The thing is, they had only received combat lifesaver training. None of them had gone through like a full school to become a, a corpsman or a, a medic, as you might call in the army. 
So they were just going with the training that they'd been given, which is sort of in, in on the spot, very quick, get a tourniquet on, get the bandages on, stop the bleeding sort of thing. And they did it magnificently well. They did it very quickly. If you sever both your arteries in your legs, your amount of time you have before you bleed out is like less than two minutes. Like it's very quick. So you have to act extremely quickly, which they did. They got tourniquets on both my stumps at that point in time. My sense of time is very off. And this is also like on top of being over 14 years ago, almost. I'm not exactly in a very cognizant state. So I don't really know how much time is passing at this point. All I know is now I'm in kind of a, a, a lot of pain. I know there's blood everywhere. I remember seeing, you know, I'm missing my pinkies and some fingers now. But, you know, at the time, I remember my fingers kind of hanging off by like a, a thread. I remember I, you know, some of my arms were open and it was just kind of like, oh, crap. <laughs> Not really thinking coherent thoughts, but it's, I guess, a lot of shock, a lot of, you know, wondering why I'm still conscious. I thought you were supposed to like lose consciousness if this sort of thing happens. It's crazy that yeah. so Dan Kanawson, who was a SEAL, he got hit by an IED. It's crazy that <laughs> you maintain consciousness because he did as well. And he mentioned that the transport from the area where the explosion happened to the helicopter was like, that was the most painful experience of it all because it was, they were dragging him. His legs were obviously yeah. seriously impaired and it, it, like there was a high level of pain involved in that. So for the transfer from the area where the explosion happened to the medevac, do you remember that? And was that, that like a oh, high level of pain? Oh yeah, it was God awful. So here's a few things. So the funny thing is that, so we're all the way up this alleyway where the only way to, so Medivac gets called in and I basically need to get taken back to a patrol base where it's safe, where they can land a helicopter so they can pick me up. So that means that they have to get me back to the road so they can get me into a truck to drive me back to the patrol base. Now, the thing is, no vehicles can fit up the alleyway. I mean, and I'm up like maybe, again, it's like maybe a football field up this alleyway or so. And so the only way to get me back to the road is like carrying me. And I'm conscious for this. Now, what the guys I was with ended up doing, one of the Afghans I was with saw this kid who was, I guess, coming back from the, the village market with a wheelbarrow full of vegetables, goes up to the kid, slaps him, takes his wheelbarrow, dumps it out. And then they put me in this wheelbarrow and then run me down the alleyway to the pickup truck. So I'm just like, you know, wheelbarrow, like, I don't remember this ever being issued here or like something we ever trained for, but I'm just kind of going with it. So I'm just kind of bouncing up and down in this wheelbarrow, just barely con like still conscious, like wondering a little, but not asking questions. Like, why am I in a fucking wheelbarrow? So then they get me to the 611, where it's like one of the Afghan, it's like these Ford, Ford pickup trucks that they all have, where I just get loaded into the, the bedding in the back of like a Ford pickup truck. And then the driver just takes off down the road to get me to the patrol base as fast as possible, understandably. But keep in mind, this road had not been paved yet. So it's extremely bumpy. So my squad leader and one of my foreman's in the back of the pickup truck in the bedding with me, and the corpsman's just sticking me with as much you know, morphine as he can. And my squad leader is literally holding me down by my chest to keep me from bouncing out of the back of the truck 
because we're hitting such big bumps at high speed. I would have fallen out <laughs> with a couple of these. So he's holding me down, just talking to me, asking me questions, which I guess also kind of helped keep me awake. <laughs> it was just like every few moments, it's just like, oh. Sounds like a scene out of Tropic Thunder or something like that. Something oh. that's so, a wheelbarrow is insane. That is crazy. A poor kid. Absolutely. That's the whole thing. And then just like, just being in the back of a Ford pickup truck, like, all right, the greatest military industrial complex ever to exist. And here I am in like the bedding of a pick, like Ford pickup. <laughs> you end up back at the outpost, you get medevaced and then you get anesthetized. Yep. Am I saying that right? Anesthetized? I think so. You get anesthesia yeah, on the helicopter, right? And then you go out and you end up coming to what sounds like in Bethesda. But typically when people sustain this type of injury, they go to Germany, from my understanding, or some other area, maybe Bagram and then to the US. So do you, were you out completely until you were at Walter Reed? So what happened with me is I got picked up by the helicopter. They put the gas mask on me and I basically inhaled as hard as I could because I knew exactly what that was. I did not want to be conscious anymore. And I'm like, thank God, took the deepest breath out of that mask I possibly could. Next thing I knew, I woke up in Landstuhl in Germany. What happened was usually most guys don't wake up until they get back to, uh, you know, either Walter Reed or Bethesda. They're stateside when they wake back up again. That's most guys I talk to. Like, you know, they don't even remember stepping on the IED. They're just going about their business. The next thing they know, they're in like Walter Reed and like, whoa, what happened? That would have been fantastic. I wish that was my experience. What happened was there had been some bad weather. And so they had to cancel the flight that was initially going to fly me from Landstuhl to Andrews Air Force Base outside of D.C. So I ended up like being kept in Landstuhl for like a week, I think. That wasn't too much fun because they, I remember they couldn't feed me anything because it, it, it kind of felt like I woke up in the Matrix is what it felt like. Because I, I woke up, had all these like wires and tubes and stuff just coming out of my nose, coming out of my mouth, come, like all hooked up to my arms and they like it was just like all these different wires just coming out of my body like what the heck and it was miserable because you couldn't eat any food because you had this like they were putting so much antibiotics and everything else into your system that they had to constantly pump your stomach fluid out because otherwise you would get queasy and throw it up so you also couldn't eat any food. So they basically just gave you like these sponge lollipops that had water to keep your mouth moist. So for like that week, I wasn't eating any food. I was in pain, <laughs> dehydrated. And it's I'm like overheating constantly. They didn't have enough fans for some reason. I just remember that being really miserable. Were you married at the time? I know you're married now. I know you have a daughter. I, I got the picture of you and your daughter, and you're like holding her in the weight vest. Super cute photo. Yeah. Uh, were you married at the time? No, I wasn't. I only got married two years ago, three years ago. That was recent. How did your family find out? So here's the other interesting thing. So apparently, the way the Marine Corps does it, or the military in general does it now, is they still send a pair of Marines to the house of your next of kin to tell them that you're injured. Now, the thing is, what they do is apparently they wear an armband that's supposed to signify that they're reporting a, ca a significant casualty, not a fatality. Now, no one's told that. So my dad gets woken up at like eight o'clock in the morning on, or seven o'clock or something, like early in the morning on Sunday with two Marines at the front door. 
and he loses it because he thinks they're about to tell them like, oh, your son's killed in action because that's how that goes. Well, apparently, no, they, they tell him that he's significantly wounded, but he's still alive. Oh, we're wearing the armband. Didn't you know that means he's not dead? It's like, no, <laughs> they don't tell you that. Dude, yeah, the, in no way, shape, or form are civilians notified about the armband. Never mind. Like, what the hell? That's so that must have been for, almost giving them a heart attack. Like, yeah, that so must have found out. It must have almost been a relief at that point. Like, obviously, the situation is very bad, but you're not like yeah. you're still alive, right? That has to be yeah. some sort of a relief after you know the initial gut reaction of thinking that you know the idea had killed you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, from there it was only up, and they didn't know how much or how badly I was wounded. They didn't know if my face was melted off or I was ever going to be a functional member of society again. They they had absolutely no idea. I mean, I had no idea what I was ever going to be able to do again. I mean, you're kind of just like focused on the here and now, and you know, I mean, for weeks you're just waiting for the pain to go away. I mean, even with all the pain meds and everything they're giving you, like, still, man, it's it's rough for like the first. First month or two. Yeah, first month or two is rough because all you're doing is just going through surgeries. Like, I probably had over 20 proper surgeries that I went through. You're constantly on meds, constantly on all kinds of antibiotics and whatever other crap they give you. Your body's just been rocked. So you, you feel like absolute garbage for months, you know? Let's talk about the mental aspect of it. I know, as I told you before, we started recording, I sustained a spinal cord injury. I found mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of the physical challenges are trumped much like way more than the, by the mental challenges that come along with an injury like this. So like, I know you're super young when you got hurt in your early twenties, like what was your mentality at and how did that progress through recovery? Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. One of the other things about being in the infantry is it's a bit like, it's a bit like being a professional athlete in the sense that your job description or part of your job is your athleticism. Like your ability to physically perform is part of your job in that sense. So immediately, if you're catastrophically wounded like this, your entire craft is taken away from you. Like, yeah, I might be able to stay in the military. I'm not going back to what I used to do, even if I stay in. Like, you, it's just not going to work that way. Maybe someday way off in the future, but you know, I, I know that that's kind of gone from my life here on out. So it's tough because, like, I'm 25 years old at the time. I'm a tall guy. I'm in really good shape. And a lot of your, your self-esteem is sort of predicated on that. And so when that gets shattered, it's pretty shattering for your, your ego and, and your entire sense of, like, self-worth. I mean, everything I've done in training in the schools and in the workup and just the experience that I've had is all to perform this job that I can no longer do in any way, shape, or form. I can't even do a job similar to it in any way, shape, or form. So you're starting over at something from pretty much square one. That's a really difficult thing. Not even to mention getting into like, how do you go about your daily life? I mean, you're a young guy, like you want to be independent. You need to be independent to have any kind of confidence. So it's like, it's it, it's a lot of ways you're starting over from like almost being a toddler again and relearning to do everything. How do I go about my day? How do I get in my car? You know, how do I go grocery shopping? How do I, you know, go to the bathroom? You got to relearn to do everything. And everyone's situation is a little bit different. And, you know, just to, to the extent that you can, 
just become as independent and non-reliant on technology as, as he can is all he can really do. Now, interestingly, one of the experiences I had in the hospital, so it's a bunch of guys, young, blown-up soldiers who are just kind of going through the same thing together, commiserating, and dark humor abounds, as you can imagine. And the thing that we sort of played with each other is this game of like trading baseball cards, like who had the worst injuries kind of thing. Like, you know, was it worse to be missing both legs or a leg and an arm? What about the right leg and left arm? What if it's a right leg and a right arm? Which one's worse? Or like, what about an arm, a leg and a testicle? Like, or what about like, it's kind of this game of like, you know, who's like, what are the worst injuries to sort of play around with? But the thing we all realized and no one will deny the worst injury, number one, is brain injury, brain damage. Tell you right now, completely 100%. the worst thing I, I, I've experienced with anyone else and that no one will trade for is like that traumatic brain injury. Because, man, like, okay, I don't have legs. You know what? How many jobs, you know, involve sitting in front of a computer terminal? Like, tons of jobs involve that. The job that I do, sitting in front of a computer terminal all day doesn't matter that I don't have legs. If you can't think, man, you're in a tough spot. You're in a really tough spot. To reiterate that, when I first got injured, I was put on a unit that I actually shared a room with a dude that had a TBI. And it really like, I think it's almost healthy in a sense that it does put things into perspective. Like you can look at whatever list of injuries that you had, similar to what you just said with a, you used a metaphor of whatever a, a baseball card game which is a weird metaphor but i've played that game before on an sei unit and it's like it is like almost unanimously people agree that you know severe tbis it's a horrible thing to witness number one and some of the stuff that they have to overcome like speech therapy and and, and just being able to communicate the problems that you're having is such a blessing right like something that you would never think of like the fact that i can sit here and tell you you know i have x y and z wrong with myself right now is is a weird blessing because there are people that can't fucking do that dude so it was a humbling experience for me to you know be in the presence of those that have you know sustained tbis it's it's a bad sight yeah yeah it just makes you grateful so and we, it, it sounds weird you talk to like ordinary everyday civilians about this and they're just like what did you just say grateful like jimmy you should be bitter like you should be like lieutenant dan just like throwing empty whiskey bottles at people like you have every right to, i'm like no dude you don't understand like i still have it relatively so good like there are some things out there that even i can't really you know, talk to i can't even give advice to like it's just everything comes with its own challenges and so having been around that, you know, so, someone's always got it worse than you at the end of the day. Someone's always got it worse than you. Be grateful for that. Don't try to focus on people who got it better, like someone who just lost one leg or didn't get injured. Like, whatever, man. Like, you, you got up here. That's the most important thing. At what point do you get out of the Marine Corps? That's a good question. Like, did you stay in for any amount of time after that or did you immediately uh, disconnect? I had this kind of sense as I was getting loaded onto the helicopter that was medevacing me i had this sense of like release like i like i i knew i was saying goodbye to that life i knew that when i was getting loaded on the medevac chopper that this was goodbye to the marines i joined to be the infantry i joined to be a fighter and i knew i was not going to be able to go back to that so it was it was going to be time to move on now with that it takes a long time to medically separate 
And it's a very long administrative process. And on top of just like medical recovery, I mean, God, I was probably doing surgeries for a few months. I was doing physical therapy for months, over a year, probably. It just took a very long time to go through all of that. But once it was sort of like, all right, you're coming up to the end of your physical therapy. This is as good as you're going to get. What do you want to do? And I was just like, yeah, I'm getting out, man. So even when I was still in, when I was in Walter Reed, I was already like studying for the GMAT and like these standardized tests, applying to business schools. Like I already had my eye kind of moved on to, you know, I'm going back to business school or something else once, once I get out. So you've developed like a really successful career in investment banking, which is incredible. And now you're living the civilian life. So I usually sign off with each one of my guests by kind of getting some insight. Our, our motto here is 1% better every day. Is there anything yep. that you would suggest to the listeners that you carried through you, maybe through your rehab or through your, through your time in the infantry that you would use to get 1% better every day? My favorite phrase, and this is going to sound a little cold, but it's, it's true. The most powerful three words in the English language, in my opinion, are figure it out. Figure it out. It takes some faith in your own ability to solve problems, but you are so much better equipped mentally than you can possibly imagine. And so everyone always kind of wants answers to be given to them. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do at this juncture. Like, what do I do? And again, I know it sounds really callous, but the first piece of advice I want to give anyone is figure it out. Because whether it's going through ther physical therapy and relearning how to do things, Man, no one else is going to be able to tell you how to like use a bathroom or use a car or just navigate everyday civilian life than you. You are the one that's going to have to figure it out for yourself. You are going to have to throw yourself on the fire to just think or swim and you figure it out or you don't. And so... I don't say that to aggrandize myself. I just say that because I know as I look back in terms of my time in the Marines, my time in physical therapy, my time now as a trader, yes, there always were mentors. Yes, there always were people who took a chance on me, who helped me. But at the core of it, you got to figure it out, man. You got to put in the hours. And most things, there's no easy answer, but you can do it. So that's my advice. Man, I resonate to another level on that statement. What an incredible, incredible story of uh, resilience, perseverance, and humor, man. Yeah, you have a great attitude about this whole thing. So it was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm pumped that you're going to the workshop at West Point. I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Yeah, no problem, dude. Thanks for having me.